Dear Diary, I've just been visited, quite unexpectedly, by the oddest of men. A kindly face, ruddy cheeks and a soft manner about him. But, oh, the strangest questions. He came into the milking shed. The sun was barely in the sky, it was so early. I was just finishing up with the girls and he started asking all sorts of questions about the cowpox. Had I ever had it? Did I know anyone who had ever had it? He even asked if he might check my hands for blisters. Of course he may not. Then he mumbled something about how we shouldn't worry on the deadly smallpox we hear so much about. How he might be back to talk to the others. And then he was on his way. Really, very strange. Welcome to the 18th century and to the fifth episode of our History of Pandemic series. We've arrived at a point when Europe is going through yet another major outbreak of smallpox, a disease that's been plaguing populations around the globe for centuries. In a moment, we'll hear just whom our diary writing milkmaid was describing and why he's so central to the story of smallpox. But first, Let's find out exactly what this disease was. I discussed this with both Blanchet Agouti and Brian Angus, whom we met in previous episodes, and then with our historical expert for today, Dr. Roderick Bailey from our Faculty of History. As you'll hear, we had a few small dropouts in sound due to our respective internet connections, but I promise it's worth sticking with the story. Smallpox was a serious infectious disease caused by two variants of variola virus, variola major and variola minor. A lot of viruses come from animals and so smallpox probably derives from various other pox viruses um, and it so happens it's closely related to cowpox. I say was because it has been eradicated. The last naturally occurring case was diagnosed in about October 1977, and the World Health Organization certified a global eradication of the disease in 1980. Essentially, before smallpox was eradicated, it was spread mainly by fairly direct and prolonged face-to-face contact between people, um, most commonly by airborne respiratory droplets, so coughs, sneezes, also by saliva, kissing, sharing drinks, um, also skin-to-skin contact, such as handshakes or hugs, also um, by blood products, so unclean needles or unscreened blood. Interestingly, smallpox can only be spread by humans. Scientists have found no evidence that smallpox can be spread by insects or animals. Smallpox was um, highly fatal disease, highly infectious disease. It's difficult now to think for us to think about it because it's no longer with us, but it was the most horrific disease. I mean, if you're going to do a top 10 of unpleasant diseases, it's going to be near the top because it's such a, a harming and frightening disease to have, but also just to be aware of and, and, to, and to dread. It, there's a lot of, it's, it's very much a disease associated with dread as well and emotion because of its, its symptoms. It could be hugely disfiguring as well as, of course, fatal. It could also leave the survivors horribly mutilated because it tended to affect the face. And in addition, it caused blindness. And it's been estimated a third of populations or some populations in Europe were very deeply, badly affected by it. And perhaps even one in two people had it in the experience in the time of their life and it was also a disease which affected children um, out of proportion to other age groups 
So that's another reason for its emotional impact, that it was one that affected families and it affected parents as well as as well as older people. There was a feeling that it was something that children were especially especially vulnerable to. One in three deaths in, in Europe at that time could well have been to do with, with smallpox. After Roderick had run through some of the terrible consequences of catching this disease, I asked Blanchet to take me through how the unlucky victim would typically experience it. Initially, you can have high fevers, body aches, vomiting. So the rash starts with small red spots on the tongue or in the mouth. Essentially, then they change into sores, they break open, and then that, that spreads large amounts of virus into the mouth and the throat. And this is the point that people are then most contagious because then they cough out all this viral load onto people near them. Following this, they have the rash on the skin, which starts in the face, spreads to the arms, down to the legs, hands and feet, all within about 24 hours. And by the fourth day, the skin sores, they fill with this thick, opaque fluid and they have a bit of a dent in the middle. And this is the essentially the typical smallpox image that we know. And the variola virus can be found in the fluid in these sores and also the scabs when they fall off. And people who come into contact with this fluid and the scabs can become infected themselves. Essentially though, after the scabs fall off, then that's when the healing process starts. And there's about a 30% risk of death with smallpox and loads of people are left with scars afterwards. This sounds awful. And I assume that it must have been a disease that inspired terrible fear in people at the time. Yes, it is. It's, it's a disease that provokes a lot of distress and fear. It doesn't quite result in the same terror that you see in social disruption that you see with the plague, for example, because it's something that is both, as we discussed, is both endemic and epidemic. It is always there. It is something that is, that is not necessarily an invader from outside all of the time. It is something that people are familiar with all of the time. It is always, it always there in the background. And it's also something that does not necessarily wipe out men of working age and men and women of working age in the same way that, that the plague did. So it's not quite the same, it doesn't have quite the same social impact as, as others. We're talking about Europe, of course, where there was more immunity to it, or natural immunity to it in certain groups. In places like North America, where smallpox was introduced 17th century onwards, it had a, a far more devastating impact because there was no record of immunity to that disease at all. So amongst the native American populations, the indigenous populations there, the smallpox just cut massive swathes through those populations um, with very decisive and defining consequences for the history of that continent. Before discussing the outbreak we'll be looking at in the 18th century, I asked Roderick to take me through a quick history of the disease to that point. So smallpox in the pre-inoculation, pre-vaccination era was still very much a, a, a terrible um, disease to, to have. We have to be careful that we don't read too much into ancient history and try to diagnose diseases that broke out in ancient Greece and so on when we don't have the materials available to confirm it. Um, and, and the labels that we use today are often not quite applicable to what we were looking at then. But smallpox, by which as it's represented in um, written sources and also in art as well, so paintings, illuminated manuscripts, um, that sort of evidence from the Middle Ages and medieval periods 
um, demonstrate that that afflictions like smallpox, if it was not smallpox, were very were very were, were, were certainly present. Um, there is a story that smallpox came back from the Crusades. So this was a, a story current at the time that that um, Crusaders brought smallpox back from the Middle East. And here again, we see the othering of societies. We have we see societies being stigmatized as being dirty and vulnerable and, and um, diseased, disease-ridden, and that the healthy Europeans um, are afflicted as a consequence of being in close touch with these diseased, unpleasant people. So you see that, again, in, in, during this period. But in actual fact, it's highly likely that smallpox was, was endemic in Europe long before the Crusades had been there for centuries onwards. But it's really when, when we come to the 17th century that we see that populations um, begin to move and begin to mix and begin to increase in size. Urbanization, industrialization sees populations living more closely together. Closely packed communities are more vulnerable to infectious disease. And it's then that we really see smallpox taking a grip and having this terrifying impact on populations across, across Europe. And it's the 17th century that we that we really see that. But it was also a disease that would 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 come and go. I think it's important to remember that um, because there were cases where societies were becoming, communities were becoming immune to it through through early practices of inoculation. It meant that um, that you'd have a reservoir of people who would become immune, and then of course when they start dying out and their children come through who are no longer immune, then, then, then they would suddenly become susceptible to smallpox again. So there was a cycle, really, of it, of it coming and going, of it, of it waning and it increasing over time. Um, and of course, 17th century as well is a period of great movements, population movements, um, of wars as well. So there's a lot of disruption to communities, people coming and going. If there was, for example, if there, was a, if there was an agriculture, if there was a if there was a, a crop failure, then you may see people from the countryside moving into urban areas and they might become, they might not only bring the disease with them, but they would also perhaps have less immunity than the people in the cities that uh, they were then joining. So they may also add a, 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 a rich reservoir of people in a city who were more susceptible to smallpox than, than uh, people who would be living in those cities for some time. This understanding of smallpox as both an epidemic and an endemic disease was also a point emphasised by Erica Charters, Associate Professor in the History of Medicine in Oxford's Faculty of History. So before there's inoculation variolation, and so that's even before vaccination, what happens with smallpox is it becomes a kind of endemic disease within England in the 1700s, but it's in a cycle, and again it's regional, so like urban centers such as London, it's endemic, it's part of life, it kills a lot of children. But in rural areas, it's something that comes in, you know, every 20 years, 30 years, and so there it's an epidemic. What I find very interesting about that is in the same context, we can think about how smallpox, of course, goes to the Americas, a place where they don't have smallpox and really devastates societies there. People often see that as being the most devastating epidemic in the historical record. You can kind of go close in and say smallpox is epidemic in some parts of England, endemic in other parts, and then you can even go further out and say smallpox is endemic in Europe, but an epidemic in the Americas. And one of the interesting things about the Americas when we talk about smallpox is it it shows us how difficult it is to try to measure 
an epidemic. Um, the debates on how many people are actually killed by smallpox in the Americas is constantly debated, partly because we don't know how to measure extreme mortality. Some people say it can kill off 90% of populations, partly because there's a huge debate over actually uh, indigenous populations and what they are, but also because, as people point out, this is not just smallpox acting on its own. It's about smallpox and European colonization, which can be quite brutal, upended societies, often destroyed crops and livestock, ways of living alongside war and conquest. So I always think that smallpox in the Americas is a great example for getting us to break down this notion that disease just is this kind of individual entity acting on society. Because what we need to remember is that smallpox is working in tandem with human activity. I was keen to understand more about where we get most of our information on this period. Obviously, we're left with written records, diaries, letters. Those are sort of the more personal documents that survive and that give you a vivid insight, admittedly from a literate population, of course. So we don't still really have the voices of, of, other, of other sections of society, the, the poorer sections of society, the less educated sections of society. So we still don't really have that perspective that we have on other later diseases, if we're talking about the 17th century. Um, we also have mortality rates, of course, so bills of mortality. We have documents that, that, that record the causes of death in this period. And those are very helpful in, in, in allowing us to reconstruct the death rates and figures of, particularly in Europe in this period. But again, the impact of smallpox on populations in the Americas and overseas and not in, not in Europe, but in the New World, again, is very, is very difficult for us to know these days because these were not societies that left a rich written record. We can also see smallpox being referred to in popular literature of the time. It was often used as a really easy way out for people. So if they, if you were writing a novel, sort of in, in you know, the, in an 18th century novel or even 19th century novel, you could just say, you know, X and Y just died of smallpox, and you wouldn't necessarily have to go into any detail because everybody reading that would know what you meant. If you just wanted to kill off somebody in your book, then you could often use smallpox. But it's definitely a feature of novels of that period that people were killed off in no short order by just saying, yeah, well, X and Y got, you know, contracted smallpox and died. It's, an easy, it's, a, it's a useful um, get-out. I wondered what the medical profession looked like in the 18th century in comparison to how it's structured today. So the medical profession in Europe in the 18th century wasn't quite the medical profession that we're familiar with today. In some ways, it was a less respected and less authoritative profession. So the voice of a physician was not necessarily... Um, taken as being the be-all and end-all of, of, of medical advice. There was a great deal of folk medicine still in place around around Europe in these, at this time, in these years. There were also a, a great, great number of alternative medical practitioners as well, who offered alternative medical remedies to diseases and other afflictions, but also cheaper medical, uh, medical remedies because physicians cost money and poorer members of society were not always able to access the, the facilities and the support that they could provide. So we have this image of quacks today, quack doctors, you know, witch doctors, fake medicines and things. But in those days, quite a lot of the time, those were for the for large proportions of society, those were the only ones that were available. 
and they were perhaps more trustworthy because they'd been used for, for decades, some, some old traditions and folk remedies to different types of medical affliction. So some of these things were trusted more than, than the advice of a, of a professional medical doctor practitioner, as we might understand them today. I also wondered what some of those early remedies would look like. There were various remedies to smallpox before vaccination. Some of them were, would strike us today as extremely unusual. So, for example, the colour red was seen as something that could ward off or treat smallpox. There were a lot of alternative, alternative solutions like purging, uh, purging the body of blood. This was related to the, to the humour system by which the body was understood for, for many centuries. There were incantations and there were, in some societies, there were gods and saints to, to whom you could pray in order to ward off or um, seek treatment for, for smallpox. My understanding was that the first big move away from these folk practices was variolation. So I asked Roderick to tell me more about this early practice. Variolation or inoculation, as it's also known, um, and engrafting was another way that's another term for it, as it was described at the time. It essentially is the deliberate infection of a healthy human body with smallpox in order to um, to make that fresh human body, that unaffected body, immune to smallpox. Essentially, it meant taking pus from an infected individual, ideally a mild case of smallpox, and then inserting that into the bloodstream of um, somebody who wasn't infected. And then they would suffer, they would come down with a, with a case of, they would become ill and sometimes they become seriously ill but they would the idea the hope was and this was proven quite often was that they would recover swiftly by comparison to a full full um, infection of normal smallpox and then not only would they recover but they would also be immune for the rest of their life this seemed to me rather similar to the chickenpox parties that i remember being taken to as a child well in some ways the, the principle is similar in the sense that you are because of course it was aimed at it, children were very much um at the centre of the, of the practice. The idea was that parents would want to ensure that their children were immune. And of course, the parents uh, in, invariably knew very well the quite how distressing and, and um, devastating smallpox could be. So there was, there was a great deal of enthusiasm for variolation, inoculation. Um, but yes, it does mean taking your child to be deliberately infected with a disease that you cannot be 100% certain will not kill them. And on top of that, the, it, is a, um, it is different to chickenpox parties in the sense that in order to enter the skin and infect the blood, you had to harm the body. So there was also trepidation about that. And it also put doctors in a, in a peculiar position because essentially they are not only um, harming the body with, 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 their, with their scalpels and so on, but they're also, of course, inserting a disease that will make this child or the person whom you were infecting, um, could make them seriously ill and could kill them. The next big medical breakthrough after variolation came from a man you may well have heard of, Edward Jenner. There is a story, of course, that, that Edward Jenner, um, a, you know, a young English doctor, late, late 18th century, the story is that he uh, became aware um, from his work as a, as, a, as a doctor in Gloucestershire, he became aware that milkmaids, dairymaids, women who, who milked cattle, um, were protected from smallpox, that they did, not, they did not get it. And the idea was that somehow they were infected with 
with they, they, they became infected with cowpox, which was a similar disease, but only affected cows, and that dairy maids and therefore were somehow immune to, to smallpox. That actually it, that was not his discovery. That had been known for some for some time, but he was certainly the first to try to put it on some kind of hard scientific grounding, um, and he was the man who decided to try to publicize, try to spread spread the word really of this uh, on the basis of experiments that he had done personally in in Gloucestershire on individuals who, um, who that he was able to show and demonstrate. That they were that the cowpox prevented smallpox from developing. Jenner very famously, I think, very modestly said that he just did the studies to show something that was already being practiced by uh, milkmaids, for example, um, and showed that you could protect against smallpox using another virus. And of course, that's what we're doing with these adenoviral vectors, though we use genetic engineering to change them rather than just discover them. Of course, not all of Jenner's methods would have been allowed today. If we were looking at it today through the, through the lens of bioethics, I think we would raise an eyebrow somewhat at Jenner's methods at that time. And I can't imagine his, his particular research proposal being waved through by an ethics committee. He essentially, um, yes, infected a, a, a child who was the son of his gardener with cowpox and then subsequently in order to test whether that made him immune to smallpox he then infected the child deliberately with smallpox you know and in this case very fortunately for all concerned um, the child did not develop smallpox there is an interesting dynamic here between the doctor and the physician and the child and also i think you know we what was the relationship you might wonder between jenna and his gardener is there a, a degree of authority uh, here that's and um, a, a, a dynamic between employer and employee it's these are the sorts of things that today will be flagged as as um, no-go areas but I think in those days of course uh, there was a very different way of approaching um, ethical quandaries such as this and his gardener's son wasn't the only person on whom Jenna practiced so Jenna doesn't stop uh, treating and then infecting smallpox his, uh, his gardener's son he also uh, treats his own son and others and these all feature in his in the report that he writes up at the end of the 18th century in which is in which his findings and his recommendations go go forward and it's those that that, that take that take his his reputation and um, on in which his reputation is, is, is founded and it's his findings of course that spread so quickly and rapidly across um, not just not just through the medical community but through through populations at, and governments um, in general. Let's talk a bit more about this reaction from wider society and the impact of Jenner's discovery. Jenner is swift to go into publication with his findings right at the end of the 18th century. And very quickly, um, his ideas are not only welcomed and supported, but they also spread. So they spread very rapidly around Europe. He is praised by individuals ranging from you know, the senior members of the Royal Society of Medicine, um, all the way to Napoleon and the Pope, who, who, who consider him and his uh, achievements worthy of the greatest praise. So he very much, his, his methods are swiftly follow as well. And, so, and to the extent that they are taken up 
on, on, on a mass scale, really, throughout in certain countries. And then, of course, they do spread very rapidly also across to, to the United States as well. You know, it's interesting to reflect on the fact that this was a time that Britain was at war regularly with France. And yet it's also a time when Napoleon singles out Jenner for particular praise as a man whose contributions essentially are some of the greatest to health that uh, have, ever been, have ever been made. And uh, the, the praise with which, or the, the, the esteem with which Napoleon, um, in which Napoleon holds Jenner, even leads to the release of, of, of British prisoners. But you also find um, individuals such as the Pope as well, praising Jenner for, for his contributions. It's very much European-wide phenomenon that he's, he's at the centre of. And yet at the same time, the disease is still being distinguished by, as something that comes from elsewhere by this point. And then as it, as it starts to decline in Europe as a consequence of vaccination, it is associated increasingly as being a, a disease of other parts of the world, other parts, um, colonies and that, those sorts of areas. I'd heard that initially the Royal Society didn't entirely approve of Jenner's work. Yeah, that's true. They, they did. So the Royal Society initially were, were hostile and warned him that that wasn't the sort of thing that he should be um, going with. It wasn't, it wasn't exactly going to be a career. This was at the very start. It wasn't going to be a career enhancing statement. But then very rapidly, once his proof, if you like, became clear, the evidence for his claims became clear, then they, then they turn around. I was curious as to whether the general public reaction at the time was overwhelmingly positive or more varied. Yeah, there are still mixed reactions to Jenner's findings and his, his, great, his great discoveries and his scientific evidence that he's presenting. There are people who distrust the idea that um, anything from an animal could alter human health or even should be used to human health. So there's even there's a religious... Uh, some religious hesitancy amongst religious groups, some hesitancy among religious groups about whether this is really what medical men should be doing in terms of uh, perhaps upsetting God's work by fiddling about with animal bodies and then injecting things into human bodies. So there's there's a bit of that. There's also some, once the cost of it becomes clear, there is is considerable resistance, partly because um, of the cost in that poor sections of society just cannot, cannot afford it. And they resent this intrusion into their lives of, of, of the state. There are also parallel to that, there are also some concerns about the effectiveness of the vaccine. For example, um, there are documented cases, of course, of people quite early on, of people becoming no longer immune. And this is a feature of the vaccine in that it did not make people, did not give people lifelong immunity, it gave them temporary immunity. So after about 10 years or so, when that immunity began to wear off, there were those who felt that it was something that could not be trusted. And at the same time, there, there are cases of people being in, in infected and injected with vaccine that was not clean and was not sterile. And they, there were complications because of that. So people didn't trust the, the purity of the vaccine. And I think all of these have parallels today um, in, amongst those who are members of various anti-vaccine movements. This sounded rather like our modern experience, with an organised anti-vaccine movement casting suspicion on what Jenner and his contemporaries were doing. You, you do see perhaps um, more debate and discussion about the pros and cons of vaccines. So that is very present. Coming in at the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th, you see some discussion, a growing movement 
of individuals who are hesitant about inoculation and vaccination. They are suspicious of governments, particularly government state intervention into the lives of individuals because they fear that inoculation and vaccination of, of people is not necessarily a, 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 safe, a safe way forward. So it's quite interesting that you do see these resonant emotions uh, appearing in sources that are 200 years, 250 years old. And they do speak quite clearly today to, to similar fears about, about vaccines. With smallpox being so prevalent and such a big story at the time, I wondered why I hadn't seen it reflected much in art from the period. You know, you'd have to have a reason to go around painting somebody with, with smallpox. And so someone like Lady Mary Montague, who famously brought back the idea of inoculation, or at least her idea of it, from Turkey, from Constantinople, um, early in the 18th century, and was played a very important part in um, publicising inoculation uh, variolation practices first in England and then and then elsewhere in Europe. Um, she herself had had smallpox and had been, been disfigured by it. In the sense, I think she had you know, she had no eyebrow eyelashes or eyebrows and these sorts of things left, and her face was her skin was was was, was badly affected. But um, but if you do if you do find if you do look at paintings of her, of course, they are far more complementary and they don't pick up on that that sort of stuff because you know what painter would would do that. The reality, the real, the, the authenticity of with which artists in the 20th century, in particular, paint, um, you may not see when it's in when they when they're commissioned to do paintings of the great and the good who've come down with smallpox in the 19th century and the 18th century. I was also interested in the extent to which smallpox was a disease of the poor and not the rich. Class has an interesting relationship to smallpox, particularly in England and Europe at this at this time. Partly because if you compare it to what came before inoculation, it's a, it's a, it's a strange situation in that often the, the, the more wealthy classes would have access to funds with which they could spend on the whole host of strange remedies that were available, such as purging, exposure to extreme heat, exposure to extreme cold, that kind of thing, um, which Thomas Sydenham who was a, a great, great proponent of and an advocate of skilled practicing at the time, um, claimed that, that actually this was more harmful to those classes because they were being they were at the mercy, if you like, of untrained spe um, specialists who were um, unable to provide skilled and effective medical treatment. Whereas the poor just had to contend with smallpox on its own, and he felt that that was perhaps a more favourable situation to be in and he felt that the best practitioner as far as smallpox treatment was concerned was someone who did the bare minimum in terms of, of treatment so that's one side of things but then also of course to be able to go to a medical man a practitioner whether professional or not seeking a solution to that seeking some sort of treatment you would have to pay for it so even with inoculation you would have to pay for that so there is still uh, a degree to which the poorer sections of society still remain unable to access the types of treatment that actually worked at that time. Moving on to the end of this outbreak, and indeed this disease, even though Jenner had been pioneering vaccination back in the 18th century, it wasn't until recently, indeed when I was a student here, that the world was finally rid of smallpox. 
Yeah, it is a long time. So it's you know it's it's 180 years or so before smallpox is eradicated, and that's and the reasons for that are quite quite complex and and also numerous. But smallpox, after Jenner's vaccination, his techniques are publicised. Smallpox continues. It is still a virulent disease in other parts of the world. Uh, a great killer has a, um, a terrible impact on society. It continues to have this cause the same dread that you saw in Europe from the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries before vaccination became common. So it remains a very significant problem in parts of the world that did not necessarily matter so much, if you like, to um, Western and imperial um, governments and, and countries. So it takes a while for, um, for smallpox vaccination to spread decisively around the world. And it's really the post-war world in the 20th century when you find um, some discussion and then calls for uh, a united worldwide effort by the WHO to try to eradicate smallpox. But a lot has changed by then. So one of the key factors involved in eradicating smallpox that is now, uh, which makes it possible, um, is that the smallpox vaccine is now, by, by the 1950s and 1960s, is a free freeze-dried vaccine which can be held at room temperature whereas most vaccines even today have to be held have to be stored in in the cold and have to be treated very carefully the smallpox vaccine could essentially be left at room temperature for for months on end and would still be effective to be used so it was ideal for uh, more than any other remedy that, that had been um, contemplated it was ideal for 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 use in countries that were hard to navigate, that took time to move around, and in which it took time to, to track and trace everyone. And a number of organisations, not least the World Health Organisation, have played a huge role in this story. So the WHO is one in a, in a line of organisations that were dedicated to the health, improving the health, to the public health of multiple countries. So the League of Nations in the 1920s and 30s had a medical division and sought to improve public health in various parts of the world. You also see private institutions like the Rockefeller Foundation engaging in public health programs in various corners of the world. So there were examples that existed before the Second World War of international efforts to tackle all kinds of, of disease. Um, and the Second World War uh, just underlines that need for collaboration and cooperation and the importance of countries working together, nations working together to tackle what we must remember are not national problems. So disease crosses borders. It hasn't, it's, no, it's no great respecter of, of nationality or national borders. So an organisation like the WHO with a global remit um, was something that uh, made sense in terms of the evolution of what institutions like this um, and it was backed by by a vast number of countries in that post-war post-war period, and that it engages on public health programs in various corners of the world. But its um, smallpox eradication program at the end of the 1950s is really, I think, one of the, if not the most striking and successful public health programs in history, in terms of the the success that that, that resulted. Though, as Roderick and then Brian and Blanchet outline. We shouldn't underestimate how difficult it is to eradicate a disease entirely. It's very difficult to stress enough how hard it is to 
stop a pandemic, particularly when a virus is concerned. Smallpox was eradicated for some fairly unique reasons. One I mentioned before is that the vaccine was extremely effective. Although we might think that the WHO and the fact that they started this program is the key factor, uh, it really is the fact that the, the, the vaccine that was in place in the 1960s, 70s uh, was, was extremely effective and could be stored in a very and, and handled in a, in a very, very useful way, which most vaccines can't be used. And another feature, which is ironic, considering this is one of the most horrible features of the, of the disease, um, which is its disfiguring quality, its ability to pockmark permanently the face and to cause blindness. These features and, and the fact that it, it manifests itself as a terrible kind of postulating effect, which, which, which very much focuses on, on the face and, and the extremities, but particularly the face, this awful dreaded disease. When the WHO set about searching for it in cases in Africa and then in particular in India, they were helped greatly by the fact that somebody who was ill with smallpox was relatively easy to find because communities would be well aware of who was ill and who was not ill. But today, of course, where we have a virus where we're still understanding the symptoms and invariably they're not symptoms that are easily discernible. They are not ones that, that are quite so glaring and um, identifiable as those that, 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 uh, that characterize smallpox. It's very tempting these days to, to, to peer back into the past to look at lessons from, from previous epidemics and previous pandemics, but we need to draw the right ones and we have to be careful we don't exaggerate some of the successes in the past and overlook some of the difficulties and some of the challenges which were in place during those periods. It's a big virus. It's a big pox viruses tend to be, as I mentioned before, DNA viruses, so they don't mutate very much. And it's only in humans, so it's human to human transmission, so there's no animal reservoir for it to hide. So it was a good target to try and eliminate with a vaccine. And uh, so it was development of the vaccine and, and uh, wide deployment of the vaccine and managed to eliminate it finally. It's one of only two infectious diseases that have ever been eradicated so far, so smallpox and rinderpest. I did say that the last naturally occurring case was diagnosed in October 1977. It's worth mentioning that in 1978, Janet Parker, who was a medical photographer who worked at the Birmingham Medical School, became the last recorded person to die from smallpox. Essentially, it was thought to be eradicated already at this point, and initially she was misdiagnosed as having chickenpox. However, there was a lot of international interest and concern from WHO, and it turned out that Professor Henry Bedson headed the smallpox laboratory at the Birmingham Medical School, and this is where she worked. And there was only a handful of commissioned WHO research facilities that still had um, the smallpox virus um, samples, essentially. So it was clear that the smallpox virus must have escaped from his laboratory. One of the theories is that it came through the vents, but no one really knows. As she ended up dying and both her parents also ended up getting ill and being quarantined. And sadly, due to the guilt and the pressure, the professor took his own life. Um, in that case, though, it was a lesson that even eradicated infectious diseases can pose a threat as long as they're being kept in some labs in the world. And of course, there's also the risk of bioterrorism. And that's why smallpox is still quite interesting to us. And on that subject, Roderick left us with a final warning smallpox would make a deadly weapon if a nefarious state or group 
was tempted to use it. Because it's the perfect disease. Okay, apart from the fact that it doesn't exist anymore, unless you know, unless you consider the fact that it's on to, you know, it's in, it's in, um, it's very secure. It's preserved in very secure conditions in labs in the U.S. and and, uh, and Russia. But should it be extracted from those, or should it be if it's if it's constructed as a disease in a lab, if it was recreated, which is not impossible, it would be a, a highly effective biological warfare weapon, because not only because it's so contagious. But because it's so um, distressing, it's such a terrifying disease. Um, because, as, as we discussed, it, it affects it affects the body and it affects the face. So it is very much something that uh, literally is a, a terror weapon, if you like. Next time on Future Makers, we move on to another disease that many may think has disappeared, like smallpox, but which sadly is still endemic in many countries, namely cholera. We'll discuss a major outbreak in the 19th century. Why someone called John Snow, probably not the one you're thinking of, may or may not be central to the story. And what a water pump in the centre of London has to do with anything. I hope you can join me then for the next episode of our History of Pandemics season. I'm Peter Milliken, and you've been listening to Future Makers. Future Makers was created in-house at the University of Oxford and presented by Professor Peter Milliken from Hartford College. Our voice actor today was Anna Wilson. The score for the series was designed and created by me, Richard Watts, and the series is written and produced by Ben Harwood and Steve Pritchard. Thank you on behalf of the whole team for listening to the History of Pandemics. COVID-19 has exposed the deep flaws in our relationship with the world and each other. We all long for a return to normality, but is back to normal really what we want? We need to seize this moment to reimagine our systems. And that's exactly what we'll do in the new series of Reimagine, which we're calling Systems Reset. In this series, you'll meet the visionaries who are revolutionizing the story of who we are and how we engage with the world. We are dumping on the future. We are dumping ecological degradation. We are dumping technological risk. I think we have to start to talk about this arc of a new human dimensional relationship, uh, a new human potential, and what that starts to imply. We'll talk about how to thrive in an entangled ecosystem, redesigning public health and economic systems, the kind of leadership we need in the 21st century, and much more. It's time to summon our moral imaginations and create systems that are fit for purpose. It's time for a declaration of interdependence. So join me, Peter Drobak, for Reimagine, a podcast from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship in Oxford. Reimagine, a podcast about people who are inventing the future.